0: And because they don't have the nerve, no, because and because they can't cause it's Disney,
1: and it's like they fied Disney. Think about yeah. that,
0: oh, yeah. think That's
1: about good- that. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed
0: location in the Rocky Mountains. And That to- is how an intro goes.
1: Today we have a few more, uh, a few more movies than usual. Um, we've seen both A Quiet Place 2 and Cruella. We'll be talking about both of those, and at the end of the podcast, we will also be reviewing My Neighbor Totoro for our streaming homework, uh, which you can now stream on HBO Max. Yeah. I thought that it would be on Disney+, Plus because Disney acquired all that Miyazaki stuff, but uh, it was not.
0: Did they? Because there's a lot of Studio Ghibli stuff on HBO right now.
1: Right, yeah. And, you know, with all of these streaming services, it's all just about who has the rights to the contracts at the time. Um, But usually Disney's pretty stingy with their properties. But, yeah, they, for the most part, deal with most of Ghibli's uh, American distribution, with the exception of a film here or there. Huh. Um, And I know Totoro especially was one. Um, Interesting. In fact, when I was looking it up in the uh, IMDB, and it it says instead of american cast cuz it has the original voice cast mm-hmm. um then it says american cast it doesn't say american though it says the disney voiced talent or whatever really mm-hmm. huh. yeah um, that is
0: that is surprising that's i don't know it's all such a big like muddle blur right now i mean right like uh uh off pod off recording we've been talking a lot about the uh netflix adaptation of sandman that's coming out Mm -hmm. which is super weird that it's going to be coming out on netflix instead of hbo max or or an hbo original because you know time warner owns dc so which the Sandman was published by Vertigo Comics, which is a subsidiary. And if you're still listening and you're still paying attention, <laughs>
1: uh, go to fucking law school, learn some contract law, and figure this shit out. I mean, somebody somewhere has. I, I guarantee there's rooms of lawyers working on this stuff day and night to make sure
0: uh, yeah, that somebody
1: yeah. somewhere is going to be making a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, that's really all that matters. Nobody... <laughs> no, I mean, ex-
0: like, the you know, the actual... Uh, like creators and people who worked on the stuff, like right. They're like, oh, we just want our, you know, people to see our stuff, and all, meanwhile, all the producers are like, whatever, whatever, give us the content,
1: feed the machine, whatever the end product ends up being. Um, yeah. so we're gonna start out with a little uh, consumo bay. Uh, what we've been watching, what we've been listening to, what we've been reading. What are we obsessed with? Uh, did you want me to go first? I don't know. Sure. Okay, well, this is going to be of no surprise to uh, anyone who's been paying attention to my Twitter feed. But I recently watched the new Bob Burnham special, Inside, and um, I will join the chorus of praise that is talking about how great it is because it's pretty great. I, I mean, I've talked about Burnham a little bit here or there as he's come up in the podcast when we reviewed uh 8th grade the film he directed and when he uh co-starred in Promising Young Woman last year and I've increasingly become more interested in him as a creative person you know when he first started as like a little 16-year-old YouTube comedian writing funny songs in his bedroom I thought it was you know fine for 2006 YouTube comedy but I wasn't like crazy about his first special what I think it was called at that time. He would have been like 19.
0: Yeah. I, I, they all kind of blur together to me.
1: That was his first big special on Netflix. And I thought, I don't know. I always felt like he was a better writer than he was a comedian because I could always feel like his, his writerly voice was, is so precise and so verbose that it kind of sterilizes the comedy for me. Um, okay. When he was at that age, especially. Now, uh, the big thing about Inside is that after 2015 or so, he took like a five-year break from performing comedy. Um, He was having like uh, extreme panic attacks on stage and couldn't do it anymore. And that's when he went off and started directing movies and, you know, doing the stuff that we've seen him do since then. And inside was sort of what he prepared as his, uh, you know, pandemic special. So it's all in the inside of a single room in his house. Um, he wrote it obviously, uh, but he also directed it and did all the production design for it, which is like minimal kind of lighting and, uh, different sort of, uh, things he does. Um, almost kind of art installation in places, that goes along with his his songs and goes along with his bits. But I think this is, you know, up there with some of the best stuff he's ever produced as a creative person, not just as a comedian. Um, but I would say this very much feels like a, a companion piece with 8th Grade and sort of what that movie was dealing with as far as like him dealing with uh, anxiety and... You know, personal distress and sort of dealing with difficult situations, you know, inside, yes, refers to being stuck inside during a pandemic. And it also refers to him being inside this one room, but it also sort of refers to what it's like being inside his head. And it's very Mm -hmm. much sort of a self-examination sort of thing. And it goes into some pretty dark pretty paranoid and depressive places as it, as it progresses. And even the funniest bits in there, and it is funny, um, quite funny. Uh, but even the funniest bits has sort of a dark undercurrent to it. Okay. Um, Uh,
0: now, so I haven't seen it yet. Um, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm generally a fan of, of Bo Burnham's comedy stylings. Um, I've liked most of his specials. Mm -hmm. Um, I just haven't gotten around to this one yet right um I know a lot of people a lot of the discourse um the the quotes discourse right uh there was a lot there were a lot of people who uh, for some reason this got uh sort of compared to hannah Gadsby's special Nanette um mm-hmm. largely because uh so and I have seen Nanette I have seen that um I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm familiar
1: with it. I haven't seen it.
0: I'll, so a lot of, uh, most of the criticism came from, again, air quotes, comedy people. Right. Um, there You know, there are a lot of comedians and stuff giving her shit for her special because a good chunk of it is pretty, like, dramatic. Right. You know, like, it deals with some uh, uh, pretty intense... Uh, personal stuff uh, Mm -hmm. about sexual assault and uh, you know she's sort of attacking these gender roles so I you know I heard a lot of people kind of comparing this uh, these two pieces of work and a lot of people saying like well why does Bo Burnham get a pass Um, you know is this comedy is what Bo Burnham's doing comedy Uh, again I it's hard for me because I haven't seen both of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're really that comparable. I, it honestly sounds like, uh, to me, it sounds mostly like, I don't know, people wanting to put artists in some kind of a box because right. it makes them, whatever it is makes them uncomfortable. And uh, I don't know. I guess to that I can I say, you know, comedy can make you uncomfortable. That's
1: Right. That's- I mean, I don't think... I think comedy has you know been especially stand up and especially uh you know solo performance stuff has been sort of drifting into dramatic territory for a long time. That's not anything new
0: and i yeah and and i mean so that's kind of the criticism i've heard is 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 it comedy or is it a, like a one man show or or it's kind of I both it's a
1: one woman show I mean, in in the case of Inside, I think it it's he's blurring those lines on purpose. Like I said, there's parts that feel like there's parts that feel like art installation. There's parts that feel like straight up silly songs, like we're used to seeing him do. Especially, kind of starts out. It gets more dramatic as it goes. Especially, there's an intermission and a second a second act, if you will. And yeah, I think he he uses all, all sorts of different kinds of techniques to. To explore this, um, explore his ideas about his own neurosis. Now, the critique I've heard, and we just recently, um, or I just recently listened to an episode of a friend of the podcast, Rod and Denise's uh, podcast, Taco Tuesday. That's their new podcast they've been doing. Okay. Um, And they did a whole episode on this. And, uh, you know, Rod's biggest critique of it and he liked it overall but he said you know like it's kind of hard to feel sorry for a guy who's extremely wealthy and never really had to deal with you know any of the the major downsides of the pandemic like he wasn't a frontline worker he didn't you know he never had to like put himself in any danger i mean but that that's kind of
0: unfair you know that's like you know we don't we don't know what people's internal struggles are like
1: right and i think that that was um i think for me when i was watching it i i I, you know i have a pretty good idea because i've watched a lot of interviews with bo burnham and stuff and i know what he was going through even before the pandemic and i could mm -hmm. see how you know being stuck inside and of course he wasn't literally in just this one room that was just his workspace yeah yeah but and also with this pressure to create something um over the course of the of the time well that i mean that's that's a whole
0: other thing so right but i kind of was like taking a step back and and from comedy right before the pandemic Mm -hmm. and then the pandemic hits and you know there's all this this time this new time available to you and as a creative as as someone who considers themselves a creative um as a writer as a performer there is this like pressure, this idea of like, well, you have time. What are you doing with it? You have to, right. you have to create. You you should be using this time. And uh, honestly, I went through like a huge creative, uh, like creative block spell. Um, like I I could not think of. I still kind of can't really shift my brain back to writing for comedy at at the moment. It's mm-hmm. just like. I don't know. It was just like a flip a uh, switch was flipped and yeah. So, so I think that's an interesting um,
1: aspect to think about as well as right. And, and a, a large part of the, of the uh, comedy show is sort of exploring that, like be, sort of just the frustration that he's not being able to produce comedy at a time when he has absolutely nothing funny to say, because not only are the conditions insanely scary, but also, he's not like particularly thrilled with himself. So, I mean, I don't want to like go into it too much because we've already talked about it too long. I'm just gonna say I think it's really good, and I know I don't know that this will mean a whole lot more to anybody other than you and maybe a couple other people who are listening who are especially into comedy. I haven't seen the Hannah Gatsby piece, but I felt like it was very much of a piece with um, Whitmer Thomas's special that came out. Uh, last year, the golden one for HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, While well, that one deals more with kind of autobiographical stuff um, with his past and his family and that kind of stuff and him dealing with that, I think the two are tonally very similar and they're okay. kind of using comedy and music and and sets and lighting and stuff in, in similar ways.
0: Okay. That, I mean, that... That's a a really good endorsement for me cuz I I loved uh the golden one. Um mm-hmm. it was it was yeah, it was probably my favorite special that came out last year. I mean there were there were a bunch of how uh, specials last year were weird in right. general.
1: Cool. Cool. <laughs> okay, so do you have anything or did you want to uh to move on?
0: Have I talked about how uh I've been rewatching Lost with my
1: wife? Kind of. Have, I, have yeah. I mentioned that we we took it came up. Uh,
0: yeah, so I I guess I'll uh, talk about that as like as a consumo bay. Um, my wife never watched Lost uh, when it was airing. Um, when it was on TV, it was my favorite show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like must see TV for me. I I had to catch it. And uh, she never saw it. She saw like a couple random episodes because her mom watched it. And then um, she, <laughs> funny enough, saw the, the series finale. Mm-hmm. Um, so she knows how it all ends. Uh, and I have been like, from the get go, I'm like, just keep in mind, it doesn't matter. Like it is. N- this is not a destination show. This is definitely like the you're you're in it for the journey, not where you're going. Cause mm-hmm. a lot of stuff doesn't pay off, um, but a lot of stuff does. And I think it's really interesting rewatching it in a 2021 perspective with everything being content and, and just the way TV is made now, it is so plotted. And so like, you know, and at the time it was the network mandate of 24 episodes a season, Um, and we're going to stretch this show out for as long as it's popular. As long as it's got the ratings, it's on the air. And uh, it's really interesting to see the way Lost played with that, you know, because at the time, I can't think of many other shows at that time, or really any, that it was like, you couldn't miss an episode. Like, everything built on top of the last thing, and uh, there was always... Some sort of story thing moving forward, and so it's very interesting to watch it uh, with my wife and our friends are also watching it. And her, she had watched the whole thing, and her husband hasn't seen it. So it's very interesting, like seeing perspective of people who haven't seen it because they're like, well, the story's kind of predictable, and uh, you know, like stuff and this stuff happens, and I'm like, at the time, it wasn't. Like, the story wasn't because TV shows were not being made like that then. And now everything is, like, pretty much since has has lost in its DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it's interesting that, like, some of the story stuff does not hold up uh, at all. But what Lost was always really good at was, like, the character stuff. Right. Uh, you know, the, they did this thing where... They told the story through flashbacks, and that's how you would get like these big character arcs and, and you know it you would see the the Sawyer episode where Sawyer's a con man and then it would show his flashback and you would learn oh Sawyer's not even his real name. That's he's trying to get another con man and he became and the right, thing right. he hit and it just Uh, so I think that aspect of it, that aspect of the storytelling still holds up, is still really
1: That was always the best part of the show to me, like, as far as, like, what's the deal with the polar bears, what's the deal with the smoke monster, what's the deal with the guy on the island, blah, blah, blah. I, I guess I was invested- Well, that's
0: the stuff that doesn't pay off, because they didn't,
1: they were pulling that shit out of their ass. I, I was invested in that, in the plot stuff as much as I needed to be, but- I was always far more entertained and enriched by the character backstories. Yeah, and and I
0: and I, <laughs> the funny thing is is my wife is very into uh This is Us mm-hmm. and I'm like you realize it's just lost without any of the like nerd elements. It's just lost <laughs> without any of the sci-fi stuff because the show is built the exact same way. It's like they have the episode of the week and then there's also flashbacks of of their parents and how they got to this point and how this thing in the past directly relates to this thing that's going on now. Right. But right the characters right. don't realize yeah. it.
1: Um I mean, to I mean, be fair, to be fair, I think HBO was probably doing similar stuff at the time. And, And I think the serialized nature of the show.
0: This is network TV. Like, right? There's a huge difference between HBO and ABC.
1: Right. I'm just saying, like, there was some precedence, and I think as far as as network goes, I mean, I think 24 predates Lost by like a year or two. Oh, I don't.
0: I'm gonna have to look that up. I actually because
1: that was one of those that was pushing narrative in a big way. Yeah, um, yeah. That's I, that's I was never good. like a big twenty-four head, but I could recognize like, oh, this is much more cinematic than what television looked like before that point. That's
0: it. You know, that is a good point. I didn't really think about twenty-four. That was, like
1: essentially doing like a Paul Greengrass movie television show.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, television was they were making some moves in the early two thousands. Yeah. I mean,
1: not, everyone not talks about the binge-worthy, and everyone talks about like. You know, prestige television and the age of the golden age of television and the post golden age, whatever we're in now, the bronze age, silver age, the platinum age of television that we're in now, and the content wars and all that stuff. It all like really got cooking around like 2003 to 2006 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and let's just get right into. I've seen uh, Crowella most recently. Let's go ahead and talk about that. All right. So Disney's Cruella was uh, just released both in theater and for premium streaming on Disney Plus. And this stars Emma Stone as a young Cruella Deville, aka Estella, um, which we find out early on in the movie is her birth given name. And she is being raised by a young single mother. Even from a young age, she's very mischievous and sort of has a temper and it's sort of revenge driven. Um, She has a dark side, yeah. A bit of a dark side. And uh, her mother's trying to sort of coax that out of her. You know, at first she's going to some sort of primary school or something like that and things don't go very well. So they end up moving and tragedy strikes on their way to their next living destination, and her mother dies at a big uh gala that they end up stopping at um a big fashion show uh where her mother plummets to her death and leaves Estella, an orphan child, raising herself in the streets of London um with her young companions, Jasper and Horace, uh yes, the Jasper and Horace that we remember from. The uh, 101 Dalmatians are <laughs> bumbling sidekicks. Um, and they're like pickpockets and Oliver Twist and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, th- although this, this takes place sort of a good couple decades jumped up from the time period of the original movie.
0: Yeah. So the original cartoon was like it was like. Late 50s, early 60s. I think it was like 58 or something. Mm -hmm. Um, The timeline of this is kind of wonky. If we are considering it with the cartoon, you kind of can't. But at the same time, the movie also desperately wants you to. Yeah. because So all the stuff when she's a kid is like in the 60s. And then she grows up and that's in the 70s.
1: Here we're jumped up about a ten years from that point, so um, we 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 take a little uh, leap in time into the seventies, where she is now in her early twenties, and she is able to get into a prestigious fashion industry job. Where well,
0: yeah, so so part of her like thing with living on the streets was she would like design costumes for them to like run their scams. So she got. Right. Uh she yeah, got really at good at
1: sewing and, and yeah. fitting and stuff like and that. Like design and Yeah. So she ends up in sort of this this fashion district in London, um, first doing kind of menial labor until she is discovered uh by Emma Thompson as the Baroness, um, who's this intimidating, you know, top fashion designer in the area, and she picks her out of the crowd. On a whim and uh, allows her to become a co designer in her fashion studio. Um, and then the movie essentially becomes a Devil Wears Prada for about an hour and a half until it kind of takes some comic booky slash uh, Disney prequel uh, turns uh, towards the third act uh, when we enter into how Estella becomes. Uh the Baroness's rival nemesis Cruella, um, which is the name that she sort of gives herself uh to sort of do this double life, both working for the Baroness and competing against her.
0: Yeah, yeah. Also there is kind of a funny I don't I thought it was funny. Um there's sort of a Clark Kent glasses situation going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, wi- was, and a wig, yeah. That I was amused by. Uh, okay. This movie. This movie is a fucking roller coaster. Um, I thought the first like 20 minutes or so was just utter trash, just <laughs> garbage. Uh, like I didn't even want to keep watching it. And then it takes some turns that I actually enjoy. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of becomes trash again. And then it was like. Every step it took forward, it would take, like, two steps back. I think this would have been a lot better if they just hadn't tried to force it to be a prequel so much. All the stuff that annoyed me the most was all the 101 Dalmatian-y-naughty stuff. Like... I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it, because it happens very early on in the movie. Her fucking parents get... Her mom gets killed by Dalmatians. Right. It is the stupidest goddamn shit. There's also some, like, uh, uh, that particular shot of, like, these weird
1: CGI dogs. There's a lot of CGI dogs happening in this movie. A lot of CGI dogs. Yeah. I mean, she has, like, her own little dog, which canonically doesn't make sense, but also... Sometimes it's not CGI, and then sometimes it is.
0: But the, some of the times it is, it is completely unnecessary. Like, there's right. a there's a scene where she's, like, sitting on a park bench and just talking, and the dog is, you can tell, is green-screened over her fucking shoulder. It is uh-huh. weird. Uh, also, and this happens especially a lot in the first act, uh-huh. uh, there is an absurd amount of record drops. It yeah. is like... Suicide Squad levels bad of just like, needle drop, needle drop. Oh, something new is happening. We have to have a new musical cue for it. And it just was so grating.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty much throughout the film. And it's, yeah, super on the nose choices. And yeah, uh, I agree. Not a, not a fan of exactly. And there there was a couple scenes where they did use score instead of the needle yeah. drop. And I was like, see? this is better. Like this isn't well, like, that's, that's what I meant when I say this
0: movie like goes back and forth. Cause there is, I did have some fun with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, again, I thought the first 20 minutes were just like her whole backstory. I thought was so dumb and unnecessary and just phantom menacing all over the place.
1: <laughs> are, uh, are you just talking about like her as like a street urchin child or, yeah, or all and, of like, the above? just all of the
0: above. I I think this movie starts to be kind of fun when she starts working at at the store. Right. Uh this this like fashion store. And you know, we know she has an eye for fashion um and you know, she's trying to like get her opinions to be heard and and get her uh and I thought that stuff worked pretty well. And then there's a sequence like later on where is like she's like a fashion vigilante, yeah, and that I thought was a lot of fun, just the way it sort of builds to the
1: way it plays out,
0: yeah, she's a she's a just a, basically a janitor to the devil wears Prada to <laughs> full on uh she's a fucking Batman villain, uh she's anti-hero. a very specific
1: Batman villain because there is a lot of this movie that's lifted directly from Batman Returns,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I, uh, that's funny, actually. Now that you mention that, I didn't even think about that because I just kept thinking of like the Lady Joker
1: comparisons like. Uh, oh, no. Craig Gillespie, who directed this film, was directly referencing and even Emma Stone's performance and like certain uh, angles that they shoot her in. The, her eye makeup is done exactly like Michelle Pfeiffer's in the movie. Um, See, the shade of makes- lipstick. I mean, th- uh, and even at the very end, there's a there's like a a, a nod where she removes the two parts from the uh, the yeah. gate from the inside. Um, it which is okay. like a nod to when uh, Michelle Pfeiffer knocks out a couple lights from her her uh, neon sign in her room to create. Are you
0: so? Are you are you sure of this, or is this just like? stuff you spotted.
1: This is stuff I spotted. I looked it up later to see if there was any kind of other anybody making this comparison and of course there is because it's so completely obvious. Um yes, this and and, and this is what I'll say about the movie. Story-wise, it's this, it's that, it's Disney prequel, it's that I have issues with the entire like philosophical reason for the this movie was made and I don't well, think sure. it even necessarily make sense on a character level if we're thinking this is the woman who would later be Cruella de Vil in so, 101 so that's, Dalmatians
0: that's what I'm saying when I, I say I wish this had just when this is doing its own thing mm-hmm. I'm having the most fun with it, it when, when it's like all of the like nod and reference and like we have to remind you a hundred times that she's the lady from 101 Dalmatians that's when I'm like getting really annoyed
1: because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But that's my issue. My, my my overall issue is I don't think it's ever doing its own thing. I think the whole movie is a pastiche. Um, It's, you know, largely it's, it's devil wears Prada, but there's also the bat, the Batman returns Catwoman stuff that is very in there. Um, There's a little bit of sort of like Harry Potter ish. Um, yeah. production design and and uh aesthetics going on raw dollish type of stuff and to me it just kind of amounts to a big pile of empty camp like it's fine for what it is um and I understand like why people are watching this and they come out very satisfied by it and that's because it's reminding you of a bunch of things you like i just don't think it it's it's just a bunch of empty calories. It's a, it's not really anything. It's I don't think it really says much about the character. I don't think it really says much about the, her redemption arc or whatever her revenge story, um, her psychosis. Well, that that's another thing with the movie is like it's just a bunch of Yas Queen girl boss moments and nothing but else. Here's the thing.
0: I, and even even that is fine. Like you know, uh, y- there's enough like dude movies just for dude's sake. So sure, let's. It's right. fine
1: to I I d- just having Yas Queen girl girl boss moments is fine. Uh, but, but what like, I'm saying pr- is the and I and I'm all I'm for it. I'm for it in all the places from the things it's heavily lifting from. But I don't. It's there's no actual like weight to any of those moments because you're like, wait a minute. This is the woman who's later going to in life going to want to kidnap and steal and skin dogs to wear as a coat. Well, yeah. And and, so and, that's, and like that's I said, my point. Philosophically, this doesn't even really feel like the same character. It's its, it's, its own kind of like Frankenstein character built on other th- movies. But like the two things we know about Cruella de Vil before seeing this movie is she loves fur coats and she loves to smoke, and she doesn't do either of those things in this movie. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so I get... <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's exactly
0: what I'm saying. Like, mm. the movie doesn't... It doesn't do itself favors by constantly reminding us that this is the character from 101 Dalmatians because they don't play her as a villain. They try no. to play her as, like, this antihero, but that doesn't work you know and and if if she was just a character named Cruella right and I didn't have the baggage of of she's gonna become a like if this is just an alternate reality Cruella Deville I mean it basically is it, it isn't because the movie is constantly reminding us that it isn't Mm. because it is constantly like, Oh, and here's Roger and here's Anita and here's the Dalmatians. And she's going to give them the Dalmatians. And like, it's constantly reminding us that this is a fucking prequel to 101 Dalmatians. So it can't be this alternate reality imagining. Like she Mm -hmm. has to become this evil fucking sociopath. So it doesn't, fucking work. It doesn't fucking work for you to to nod and wink that, ooh, she's gonna be a bad guy later, but now she's not. No, fuck you. Like, if
1: she's this villain, let her be a villain. Right, Uh, and I think that's my, my, my biggest issue with it, and why I don't think the character works, which therefore the movie doesn't work, is that she... The movie doesn't have the nerve to let her go pure evil, to let her be evil. And I mean, even the Joker, yes, sympathizes in if we're talking about the Todd Phillips film, um, sympathizes the character to a certain point, uh, and maybe arguably more than they needed to, but I think, you know, we we know by the end of the movie that this person is totally insane and absolutely unredeemable. Whereas in this film, they never cross that line. So I'm watching the movie going She actually walks it back. She actually I'm watching the movie going. Uh, Emma Thompson is more Cruella Deville than Cruella Deville. Like she is just completely unrepentantly, deliciously evil, and she's great. Yeah. Like well, just and, and so that is the the. And I don't this... take anything from Emma Emma Stone, who I think is doing a fantastic performance based upon, you know, all the stuff that she's well, given I, to uh, do. She's put
0: in a lot of boxes uh that yeah. she has to do like performance wise and and yeah i think she's she's fine she sells it she you know she mm-hmm. she camps it up exactly like you said like she does what you need to do but it's i mean it's the script's problem it's the, the story's problem of like we're gonna take this decidedly villainous character right and give them a hero's arc and it just
1: doesn't work. Right. They so, they take Cruella de Vil and make her the Count of Monte Cristo and it's it's yeah, it, they walk her right up to that line and then walk her back. I'm like and it never gels. here's me. the thing, the
0: the movie what's even more frustrating is the movie even like makes you think that she does cross that line at a point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, okay. Like I I was finally like kind of with it." And then the whole ending thing, I was just, "Oh, fuck this fuck right this. they walk like, it back yeah and and because they don't have the nerve no because and it, because they can't because it's disney and it's like they
1: disney-fied what? disney think about yeah. that oh yeah think that's about good... that
0: <laughs> so i hated the beginning uh-huh. absolutely hated the beginning
1: i, I think yeah. it could have been lopped off i don't hate it it's just extraneous oh
0: i hated it i hated it that's i think I I just think it's really dumb and completely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary. Except for all of this weird mythology they're building into this character. With the necklace
1: and her mother and all that stuff. Could have been totally written out of the screenplay and it would have been fine. The ending,
0: I also didn't care for because they do exactly what we were saying.
1: They pay all Uh, the stuff we don't care about off. Yeah.
0: The middle section, I had a lot of fun with. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I I really liked, I I think, yes, they were doing Devil Wears Prada meets Batman Returns, (laughs) but I think they were doing that pretty well and having a lot of fun with it, Mm -hmm. and so I was having a lot of fun with it. I, I really liked her as this, like fashion punk rock vigilante. And I was like,
1: all right, sure. Just watch Emma Uh, Stone and Anima Thompson vamp it up for an hour and a half. Yeah.
0: Emma squared. Just like going at each other. I was like, yeah, okay, here's a movie. Thank you for finally giving me a movie, a movie you've already seen, whatever. Everything's been done. Everything's a remake of a remake. I don't, I don't even care about that. I don't even care about the pastiche. I just, I'm so frustrated that, This movie kind of won me over. It was fun enough for me to be like, oh, okay, cool. Now we're away from this sad sob child backstory. And then they go back to it. And it's like, fuck you, movie. (laughs) Fuck you for fooling me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was never as invested um, in the backstory stuff to even be uh, mad at it. I just, I was kind of like, okay, well, you did. Set that up, so I guess we have to, you know, see where that goes. Um, ultimately, yeah, and there's like crossing and double crossing and reveals and, and stuff like that. And, and they're all ridiculous. And
0: ridiculous, but also pretty fucking
1: predictable. Yeah, yeah. Again, I see why people are enjoying this movie, and I don't take that away from anybody. I get it. I just think this movie is kind of dumb.
0: Yeah. Oh man, this movie's very dumb. <laughs> uh, but but that being said, I do think it has some dumb fun. Uh, yeah. yeah. I I do think I do think also uh,
1: I love the production design. I love the the costumes and the makeup and it is like entirely surface driven. So the surfaces are doing their job. Yeah. Uh, I and, and I, also, I think the performances are, you know, Mark Strong and 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 I I even like uh, the actors who play Horace and I will Jasper.
0: say if if we're also putting this on a on a live action Disney curve, yeah, I a, I did enjoy it more than most of the live action Disney stuff, mm-hmm. just because it wasn't literally, I mean. Yes, it was stuff I've seen before, but it wasn't literally just the stuff I've seen before, but worse. Right. Uh, Like Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. like Where they're just literally taking these movies that already exist, that are gorgeously animated classics, and just literally translating them to live action. At least this was... Something different, I mean, I guess I never saw Maleficent. um, I guess it was also trying to do the same thing. This
1: is kind of more in that that side of side of the the ballpark i yeah, I mean, I'm giving it a little a c plus I guess um God, it's fine, I don't know it's fine, i I don't know there's this
0: movie was so back and forth for me. this was like d minus, and then it got up to like a b. Mm-hmm. and then it went down to like a <laughs> d again and i and then it would go up to like a c like it this m- movie was literally back and forth every scene basically for me yeah uh so i guess averaging it out is a c i guess that's my takeaway it it's sometimes really fun it's sometimes really bad
1: um but it it's easy to watch mhm <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and talk about A Quiet Place 2. Tell me what that movie's about.
0: Okay, so A Quiet Place 2 um it pretty much takes place right after the first one. Uh there's there's a little bit of a prologue which shows us um like what happens when the monsters first attack. It shows us the day day 1. Um but most of this movie takes place immediately after, like, mm-hmm. like literally after. W- uh, yeah, we're we're in the cellar right at the ending of the first movie. Based off of the events in the first movie, mm-hmm. their farm basically burns down, and they know that, like, they can't stay there. They have to leave. Yeah, uh, Reagan Abbott, played by Millicent Simmons, figures out, well, you know, our, our best chance is to follow the signal flare and head this direction. Um, so uh Emily Blunt and Noah Noah Jupe um the son yeah they pack up they pack the baby up in his little soundproof baby box and they hit the road on their journey they come across uh Killian Murphy mm-hmm. um playing Emmett who is uh sort of uh, bunkered down by himself um, he's sort of a recluse. He's kind of given up on all of the outside world. Uh, and they knew him from the before times and essentially have to plead with him for some shelter. Uh, after that, stuff happens. I don't want to give away too much. Um, but Reagan also discovers this radio signal. That's playing this, this record and she decides, well, if they can play my feet, the feedback from her hearing aid, uh, that sort of renders these sound monsters vulnerable, leaves them prone, then, you know, maybe other people have a chance of surviving too. So she also wants to set forth towards this mysterious radio signal to, to try and give humanity whatever's left of it a fighting chance against these monsters
1: mm-hmm. so this was the first movie i've seen uh in a theater since the pandy started i uh which is a a good movie to, i think i find enough film to see in a theater um after a you know global pandemic well given that it's a end of the world scenario and so there. There's
0: something I think that's kind of interesting about that, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. I, As I was watching it in theater, I was like, it's kind of weird that I'm watching this in a theater, and, and this is a movie about the end of the world, and, and about a world that has to adapt, mm-hmm. to change, to survive the new conditions of this world. Right. And... The fact that I'm like, oh, well, I'm watching this in a movie theater because I'm in a world that literally cannot adapt uh, to change, to accommodate a new world. Uh, so I'm doing this very old world thing. I don't know. It There was a weird dissonance in my head at the time. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but yeah, the irony wasn't lost on me. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's also it was nice to see because it is, I think, like the first one. It is inherently sort of cinematic because none of the characters can talk
0: um, yeah. or they can't uh, talk uh, out a loud. Lot of, there's a lot of playing with uh, sound design. Right. Uh, a lot of playing with, you know, what uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, mixed audio focus, which is really cool.
1: Right. Yeah. And and a lot of the movie's tension is based upon um, what kind of sound these characters are or are not making. And so... And John Krasinski comes back as a director. He he shows up a little bit as an actor in that prologue we were talking about. But basically for the rest of the movie, Killian Murphy is filling out his role. Um, and then, you know, for the rest of the movie, he's behind the camera. And I think he does a decent job here, just as he did with the with the last one. I would say, overall, I don't have a ton to say about this movie. I liked it, but it is kind of just more of the same. I don't think it, it really pushes this world or the world building or what we know about these creatures or these characters really in any new directions. Um, it kind of plays around with some survival horror stuff we've seen um, in you know zombie movies of yore um, uh, towards the end of the, the third act of the film. And if you've seen any of those movies, you kind of know where things are going to go. But I, I enjoyed the journey getting there. I still enjoy the concept of these, you know, supersonic hearing, vicious animals that will just come after you from any direction everywhere uh, if you so much as, you know, step on a stick the wrong way. Yeah, there must be hundreds of millions of these things. We, we we never really, like I said, we don't learn much more than we know from the How first one. How do they one.
0: know it's not another one of them? Because they're pretty loud. <laughs>
1: Sent probably I don't know um but yeah I think and I think one th- another thing that both movies do really well is um when the characters split up uh they kind of we kind of get like a plot b plot kind of situation and um I think he's really good at sort of cross cutting uh between mm-hmm. the two scenarios and letting the tension sort of um ramp up in uh, against each other in these juxtapositions Um, and again, we kind of saw him do that in the last one. They kind of do it again here. It is very much like, uh, play the hits, uh, as far as, uh, the, the direction of the sequel. I, but I think if you like the first one, there's absolutely no reason why you wouldn't like this one. If you're, if you walk in wanting to know a bunch, if you walk in, you know, wanting aliens to alien, it's not that. It's more like Halloween 2 versus Halloween.
0: Yeah, I think this is kind of a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I think with sequels, the idea is uh, let's go much bigger. Let's go let much... Uh, uh, let's kind of expo- do all the stuff we sort of couldn't do in the first one. Air quotes right. couldn't do in the first one. Personally, I tend to prefer uh, more of the same. Um I don't know. Some, sometimes going bigger is a swing and a miss. Sometimes it's knocks it out of the park. It, it It's more of a risk um, to sort of change the formula mm-hmm. up that way. Um, and I don't think that the first movie really needed that. I think one of the reasons the first movie was so successful, one of the reasons why I liked it was it was so economic with its storytelling. Mm-hmm. It was so... Let's just be ground level with these characters and see how they survive this insane situation versus let's make this super premise and and deal with this premise on a, on a huge global scale. Um, so, you know, I like that. I like that they decide, well, we're going to kind of stick with that sort of economic storytelling and... You know, try to tell as much story without dialogue as we can. Mm -hmm. Um, This one, I think, cheats a little bit more than the first one. There's a little
1: bit more we can conveniently talk here moments. Right. Or there's more uh, uh, because the character of Reagan is deaf, so they, they can communicate with her through sign language. And I was noticing a lot more exposition through sign language this time around than we did the first time. Yeah, yeah, Um,
0: Um, which which again is fine. mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there are there are a few new ideas this brings up to the table, but essentially, yes, this is just this is a a, a, this is The Strokes' second album, right? Yeah, you know, this is. uh, But I mean, you know, the Ramones always sounded like the Ramones, so why not? Uh, And and I think that's kind of the case with this. Is is like. We don't, I, I don't know, I would have been kind of annoyed if they had decided, if they had gone in, like, an alien's direction and been like, well, now we're going to see it, like...
1: Space Marines come and kick their ass. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would have been, I don't know, I was kind of in for whatever it wanted to be, I, and I was fine with the direction it went with. If I were given a pass at the screenplay, I probably would have pushed up the events of the third act a little sooner and extend that out. Um, yeah, because I, that's where I the did. movie kind of changes and there's more surprises and so i think let's you know get to that location i'm not going to say where it is or what it is um but let's move that location entrance to maybe midway through the movie instead of the third act and then have a little bit more exploration in this new area new characters you know stuff Yeah going
0: i on. Can, i kind of agree with you i do think as opposed to the first one there are uh, there's there's a couple pacing issues with this one. There, mm-hmm. There's kind of a chunk, a uh, uh, little bit of a slog, not slog, a little bit of a lag in the second act mm-hmm. um, uh, where it's sort of building up for stuff to happen, maybe a beat too long. Uh, and I kind of agree. I think some of the stuff in the third act moves a little too quickly. And because of that makes the ending feel very abrupt uh, so yeah, yeah I, I kind of agree with you there. I don't think this one is. As... I
1: just think on a plot and story level, it would have helped this movie distinguish itself a little bit more from the last one.
0: Yeah, I I think this. I think in general, this one isn't as spotless as the first one. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't as. Clean, like you said, they sort of introduced this character to basically just replace John Krasinski. Like, yeah, there's just a few like little kind of movie things mm-hmm. in this one, but it didn't even rub me the wrong way. It mm-hmm. was just like, oh, okay, sure. It, it, this one just didn't wow me or surprise me like the first one did,
1: right? Because it wasn't the first time you were seeing it, I would think. Yeah. And I'll say this to the movie's credit if you happen for whatever reason had not seen the first one, you could totally see this one and totally enjoy it fine. Yeah. Because you get enough of the context from the, you know, from the prologue to know what's going on and, and, uh, who these characters are. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still give it a B plus it's, it was still a good time in the, in the theaters. It's a popcorn horror thriller. Um, I would have. I think I would have liked to seen them challenge themselves a little bit more than they did. But I think overall, it's it's a uh, you know yeah, it's good.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I think
1: on a technical I, level, the filmmaking is still totally solid.
0: Yeah, I I think this movie's biggest problem is we're comparing it to the first one and right. not sort of every other sci-fi action horror thriller right um, because i still think you know this as a franchise has a lot more legs than a lot of like ge- more generic fare i don't know i i, I still think it's right it's well they barely they of-
1: they've barely even revealed anything about this premise so i mean if if we go to part 3 or and i've heard spin talks and all sorts of things if we start getting there and it's still just kind of giving us this then i'm going to get more annoyed sure if if the yeah. next one is is literally just hiding behind stuff and you know no talking and and absolutely nothing more revealed about these aliens or about this world or about these characters and it's just all set pieces then i'm going to i'm going to start to say okay like this is getting lazy
0: yeah yeah i mean they they i mean i don't know i don't want to fault them on something i
1: don't want it to go full prometheus i don't want it to go alien covenant and just go batshit bananas but i I would like that is kind (laughs)
0: of that is kind of the the hard balance to do Mm -hmm. with with a again a horror sci-fi action thriller franchise how far from the formula can you go while where audiences will still forgive you um uh
1: and in, while retaining in case, the initial appeal,
0: yeah, yeah. So I think that is. It's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, uh, mm-hmm. in the Quiet Place cinematic universe, <laughs> uh, the AQ AQP um, <laughs> But but yeah, I, I agree with you. I I think you know for it to continue, they they gotta maybe swing for the fences a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that this one's bad. I think this one is, is, uh, you know, still perfectly capable of, of telling an emotional story that's character driven. And, and I think it's successful at that. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think a B plus is, is like right on the money for this. It's
1: Mm -hmm. kind of low stakes, but, uh, successful.
0: You know, it doesn't need to be game of Thrones with all these characters dying. Um, but I was starting to feel pretty safe. For most of them, you know, so I, I, I would be nice to have them kind of shock us uh, with with some stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, let's go ahead and move on now to the streaming homework, which is My Neighbor Totoro, um, which you assigned me, mm-hmm. and neither of us had th- seen this movie yet. <clears throat> Correct. This was originally released in 1988 out of Japan. Um, and was later redubbed in English uh, through Disney. Um, yes. Which uh,
0: the one on HBO Max is the, the dubbed the version. Dub.
1: Yeah. I know. I didn't check the audio options. Maybe you can watch it in the original Japanese. But yeah,
0: I don't. I I didn't really look either. Yeah. I just kind of played it. I mean, usually with the, uh, especially with like the Studio Ghibli productions, their dubs are pretty good. Yeah. Um. Yeah. They usually get a pretty good cast.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is one of the more well-known movies by Hayao Miyazaki and I've heard people say and, you know, if any of our listeners have been to Japan, please fact check me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that over there Totoro is basically like Mickey Mouse. Like, he's everywhere.
0: Um, Uh, I think Hello Kitty is closer to Mickey Mouse. Well,
1: Hello Kitty's everywhere as well, but I think that the the character of Totoro is is very iconographic, and it's everywhere. He's in all of the crane machines, and you know you can still buy a giant Totoro. Well, yeah, it's because he's adorable. pillows and you know that kind of stuff.
0: I mean, who doesn't want to hug Totoro?
1: For sure, the story of the movie is there is a a, a single fa- or a father, father voiced by Tim Daly. Um, from the show Wings, aka Superman, from the Superman animated show, and his two daughters, uh, Satsuki and uh, May, voiced by Dakota and Elle Fanning when they were very much younger, and they have just moved into an older house. Their mother is sick in the hospital, and she's in recovery still. Uh, the father is a professor who has who has to teach in the city, and while they're sort of. Uh, at their own devices in this country home that they just bought, uh, May is old enough to be in school, um, or no? Is that th- I'm, I think I'm getting them confused? Uh, Sasaki so, Se- is is Sasuke in school. is
0: the older one. Yeah,
1: yeah, and uh, May is a little bit younger, and uh, they're sort of exploring these forests and stuff around where they live, and they run into uh, this gigantic uh, sleepy cat. He's a I believe he is a forest spirit. Yes. Um it 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 looks a little bit like a cat, a little bit like a uh like a raccoon. Um kind of looks like a bear. And a little bit like a bear. Yeah. A giant Miyazaki creature. And they go on little adventures with this thing. And they kind of find out like through as they're going along that their that their mother may not be doing as well as they originally thought and this kind of ties into uh, their adventures with this this spirit named Totoro. And there's also lots of other little creatures in the movie and spirits. You know, these are like soot monsters that look like tiny little black puffballs that only the kids can see. And uh, the father is the one that sort of tells them about this, but it's, it's sort of uh, left ambiguous how much the adults can or cannot experience this world is it all in the children's imaginations or is it all like metaphorical and we actually did get a uh an email from a listener of the show rod who ha- oh. who has a a theory about all of this so um we'll get into that after i uh we get a little bit more into the review. but what did you think of my neighbor totoro
0: my neighbor Totoro. so it's very i i mean it it is very like you know. Much of family, skewing a little younger fantasy, you know, um, very much like, you know, using these sort of fantasy creatures as uh, metaphors for how children can deal with real life traumas and real life issues. Mm -hmm. Um, It moved a little slower than I was expecting. Uh, It's very, it's, I was expecting it to be a little more fantastical. Uh but it's pretty grounded like uh you know Totoro doesn't even show up till like halfway through the movie.
1: Yeah, he's only really in like three scenes.
0: Yeah, three or four.
1: Um I'm pretty small ones at that. I the, the majority of the movie is about these two girls kind of getting used to their new surroundings.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's pretty great as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's it's uh it's very slice of life uh until it becomes fantasy. And sometimes that's refreshing in animation to see characters being like, instead of being cartoony in in like this sense of we're going to overly embellish things. It's, it's more like we're trying to truly represent like, you know, what life can be like for a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, it kind of, re- it kind of reminded me a lot of like Winnie the Pooh type stuff. Um, you know, the, Christopher Robin was very drawn, very meant to look very grounded and and human, um, whereas all of his play friends, uh, Tigger and Pooh Bear and stuff, could be cuter and more cartoonish and stuff. I think you know it's just sort of maybe dealing more with some of the like anxieties you can have as a kid um, without even realizing it. This movie doesn't go. Full grave of the fireflies (laughs) on you. Um, But there are a couple moments where I was like, oh, is this going to, like... There's a moment where they're waiting for a bus that I think has, to me, just as much tension as anything from a fucking quiet place. (laughs) I was like, this is not going to end well. Oh, my God. It, it, It very much, like, I don't know, puts you in that mentality of being a kid waiting for your dad's bus to come, and it's starting to get too late, so... You know, you're starting to panic and you're think starting about... to
1: think the worst, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh so I don't know. I thought it was pretty uh pretty magical.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the movie. I think it's obviously dealing in fantasy and it's dealing with big creatures and magic and and uh fantasy elements, but it almost kind of plays more magic realism in yeah. terms of its yeah. styling because it is more about the psychology of, of the fantasy as opposed to, um, you know, interrupting reality with fantasy. Um, yes. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think that the, the story elements here of these girls and this new situation and this family trying to sort of get used to things while there's something obviously sadder and darker happening in the background that the movie isn't like fully letting you in on, but you can kind of gather what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that plays for multiple ages, even though the movie as a whole kind of skews younger. I, I like this movie quite a bit. I, I would say my only complaint, if I had one, is I think the fannings are a little screechy as voice actors in this movie. Um, I don't know if that is super accurate to what the original Japanese voice actors were like but i can see if you just have this on in the background while you were doing other stuff you'd be like what is this movie because I'll, uh and i you yeah, know i watch i, I, I guess- watch everything on headphones so it, for me it was just like i don't know if they were pitched down a little bit or what but it, like the way they were mixed in with the sound design and stuff i was just like they're they're a little grating on the ears like them like screaming and laughing and crying throughout the whole movie at the exact same pitch and all of the young actors have like the same kind of pitch
0: um i i didn't really notice that as much so <laughs> i I don't know i guess that's i, I mean that's pretty specific
1: <laughs> it's just it was just you're you get a little bit of ear fatigue by about halfway through the movie because of the direction of the voice acting um I like the characters a lot and I like, and I think it's really, really well written, but that, that was probably my only critique. I do think it's beautiful. I love, you know, the way Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli does all of their film and that, that sort of like watercolory sort of look, um, cell yeah, animation.
0: Color palette is great. I mm. mean, the, the character designs are great. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, Totoro is who, who wouldn't want to hug a Totoro? Um, yes, it is, just incredible it is like
1: you can also see like where this movie inspired a lot um i think you, you're yeah. you're correct in that it was definitely seems like it's kind of referencing something like Winnie the Pooh and maybe past disney things and there's always been an an east meets west shared influence um when it comes to these type of things but i think you can definitely see where this inspired something like the Snorlax from pokemon or something yeah, as but recent i think he looks as uh bang juho's uh, oak jaw um yeah
0: yeah very much uh I think that's given. uh honestly some of the, like some of the stuff from like where the wild things are mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. felt very of this world
1: yeah to- especially tonally um and I can even see like this having a, a major influence on something like pan's Labyrinth
0: you know oh, totally yeah I mean there's there's a whole like Sub genre of sad kid fantasy. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, was it the Bridge to Terabithia? There's um, sure when a monster calls. Like there, there's like
1: the red balloon thing of yeah. like
0: let's go and make our kids sad with monsters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's funny that you mentioned that Totoro looks kind of like a Snorlax because I was like he just kind of looks like a big fat
1: brown Pikachu. Well, true, it's it, that as well. Um, but yes, I, I, uh, I like the movie a lot. Everybody's ripping off
0: the design of Totoro when I think we could use some more cat buses in the world. (laughs) The cat bus is great. The cat bus was amazing.
1: A big fan of cat bus. I do want to read, uh, Rod's email, um, that he sent us in regards to Totoro. Uh, he poses a theory. He says, greetings, C and K. Regarding this week's streaming homework, my neighbor Totoro. Have either of you come across the fan theory which claims that Totoro is death? It makes the film super edgy, and those who know about this hidden meaning get to gatekeep all the plebs who think it's just a dumb kids' movie. <laughs> he says the gist of it is that Totoro is death. The girls are pretty much dead all along, and that the cat bus is some sort of ferry between the world of the living and the dead. Watch it. Watch it again if you're not too scared now that you know the truth.
0: Wait. You said death? I thought you said death.
1: No, death. Like
0: like Totoro can't hear. No, like, like he
1: is the spirit of death. Like he is a uh, harbinger of death.
0: Uh no, I don't think so. I think that to me that sounds like a very uh western perspective of this this creature. Like like when they get there, the kids are like immediately referencing these uh like weird little creatures and the dad is like oh yeah those are those are dust goblins i i don't the the dad seemed a little too familiar with this kind of stuff um and that was something that i actually found really refreshing about this movie was it it, it, you know it was like may saw totoro and the dad wasn't just like you're fucking crazy kid there's no totoros (laughs) he's like oh okay cool let's you know let's pray the spirit watches over us
1: right well I, uh, I mean i think that this is that i think all the things you're saying it might be what led some people into this theory is this idea that these characters are already dead and that's why they're seeing all of these spirits and stuff and why the dad accepts it immediately and all of this stuff and that uh that they are visiting upon their dying mother I no, think that's I, the that's the perspective, and that this this country home that they live in is some sort of afterlife
0: that doesn't make any sense. Why would she still have to go to school? Why would he still have to go to work?
1: It's like a reddit fan theory is what it sounds like to me
0: yeah, yeah. i i
1: mean
0: i mean i could i could maybe make i could maybe see the case that uh i mean. No, I I reject this theory. I'm sorry, uh, Rod. Uh, um, But like, you know, they play with the tension of... of, Yeah. ...of are these characters... This isn't Grave of the Fireflies. (laughs) We've already gone over that. If you want that movie, that movie exists. It is Grave of the Fireflies. It does not... It is not metaphorical at all. Right.
1: Uh, And as far (laughs) as the dad in this film talking about the dust goblins or the dust gremlins or whatever uh, and and being very accepting of these ideas i think yes it's in sort of more of an eastern perspective of of you know fantasy in general but also i kind of likened it to how like when you're a kid and your parents like tell you about like the tooth fairy or the easter bunny or things like sure, that yeah. and it sort of like ignites your imagination and you start to Oh, did I see the Easter bunny leave home early in the morning? Like that kind totally, of thing. Yeah.
0: That I mean that's what I likened it to is, yeah. you know, this dad is is playing into their imaginations. Right.
1: Because he's I, also trying to help them distract from what's going on.
0: Yeah, I, I think a much more interesting conversation isn't if Totoro is death, because he I don't think I don't think that theory holds up. <laughs> uh because like the entire ending when they're looking for may doesn't make any sense. Uh, (laughs) if you're worried about her dying, but she's already dead. I just don't think it holds up. I think the more interesting question is, is Totoro real? Right. Are are these, you know, are these spirits of the forest actually helping them or is it their imagination? And they make that more
1: ambiguous because there's the whole thing with the corn and all of that. Um, and that wrote, yeah. that's what got me to think about like Guillermo del Toro and, and with, uh, and with Pan's Labyrinth, because you can definitely read it as all metaphor, but there's some things where you're like, he leaves that door open a little bit. Yeah. That yeah. It,
0: yeah. And again, if you want that dark edge Lord fan fantasy, beer. like there's plenty of kids dying and there's, you know, in fantasy monster <laughs> children's sadness genre, uh, <laughs> that, I, I mean, maybe somebody saw that and ran with that theory, and that's why a bridge to Terabithia got made. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I I don't think that's the case in this. Okay, particular.
1: there's a second part to this uh, to this email. He says, side note, did you see the new Warner Brothers Discovery Mega Media conglomerate thing that totally ripped off your tagline? I'm assuming it's a reference to some old timey film. But Warner brothers hadn't used it in decades, so so finders keepers. It's yours now. Serve them some papers.
0: Yeah. So what uh, Rod is specifically referring to is uh, what what was what's the name of the new company? I don't I don't remember Warner Warner or something U- Universe or something. Yeah, it's just for War- Warner Discovery. Mm hmm. Uh, and their tagline is. It's what dreams are made of, right? Which, when we pivoted to, uh, we we rebranded from Jabber and the Drone to the MacGuffin. You started using that as our new tagline. What uh the podcast. the podcast that dreams are made of? Uh, this is a reference to the Maltese Falcon. Yes. Uh, and Warner Discovery can suck big ol' hogs.
1: <laughs> well, they surely they can use it. Um. But the Maltese Falcon, the object in the Maltese Falcon, uh, being the ultimate MacGuffin in a movie, and uh, um, and when Sam Spade is asked, you know, what is it, you know, what is the Maltese Falcon? Said so the stuff that dreams are made of. Um, so there you go. Thank you, Rod. For sending in yeah. an email and getting, a uh, you know, adding to the conversation about My Neighbor Totoro. If uh, anybody else wants to send us an email, you can do that at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Um, and uh, we will include it here in the discussion if it's, you know, directly referencing something.
0: Yeah, I'll shit on all your theories. I don't care. Yeah. Come at me, Reddit bros.
1: Keith sent a great precedent with, with the amount of emails that we get. um just by shooting it down immediately and thoroughly um for the next episode the streaming homework i'm going to assign is the 1984 film streets of fire which is a rock and roll musical crime movie uh you
0: know i'm a big fan of musicals that aren't Like traditional musicals. Yes,
1: and and this is one of them. Uh, This is directed by Walter Hill, who also directed uh, films such as 48 Hours and the Warriors. Um, So this ought to be fun. I I had a friend who wrote a paper on this movie, and I I hadn't seen it yet. But this is – I saw somewhere that it was on Netflix, so I said, oh, we're definitely going to do that. And if anybody wants to follow us on any of our social media, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram, at McGuffinPod. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGuffinPod. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whichever podcaster you're using the most, Spotify, uh, iTunes specifically. And uh, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at V.C. Cassidy. You can read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal movies. Keith.
0: You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, You can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. I'll update it someday.
1: And that is the episode. Da-da-roh, da Bye